0: Our Scripture reading today comes from John 7, 1 through 13, 37 through 39. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him.
1: Thank you, Charlotte, for reading for us. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to play a game, and I'm gonna make you play it with me now, so just get ready. It was fun. The, we have, there are different versions of it, but the gist of it was the same. And the question was, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? And we would give several categories. So here's your four options, okay? You could live in the mountains. You could live on the beach. You could live in the forest or you could live in the desert, okay? So think about what you would answer, and now I'm gonna make you raise your hand, okay? So anybody, mountains, I would, you would live in the mountains? Yeah, okay. How about beach, you live on the beach? Yeah, that's a popular one. How about the forest, anybody like that, okay? And then desert, would anybody choose to live in the desert? Yeah, see, I kinda led there, right? I picked like the worst picture of a desert I could find. Um, There's a reason in every movie when the main character gets lost in the desert, which happens a lot in movies, you think they're going to die. Because there's no water, there's no food, the vultures are always circling. The desert, we just know this intuitively, is a dead place. Uh, It may be pretty for a while and there is beauty to it. But if you stay in the desert long enough and your skin starts to feel like sandpaper and you're tongue starts to stick to your mouth, you think long and hard about the the beach house you could have had, right? (laughs) And here's the proof. I mean, you don't need it because no one of you picked desert. But if you change the question, it's even stronger. If I asked you if your life could be like any one of those things, what would it be? If you could be like a mountain, if you could be like a beautiful ocean beach or like a forest, or you could be like a desert, what would you pick? No one wants to be a desert. No one wants to be a dry, dead ocean of sand, right? We don't want to be like this. And in our text today, John, who who wrote this gospel, is actually presenting us with something not terribly unlike what I asked us just a moment ago. He's saying that most of us, when it comes right down to it, are living desert lives. They feel pretty fragile, they're pretty scary, they're pretty dry, and sometimes they feel pretty lifeless. And John is saying, what if you could have overflowing life? What if you could have that? What if you could have gushing river life, even though you feel like a dry, dead desert? And John says, Jesus is offering this to you. Will you take his offer? And we just read it in verse 38. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the image Jesus gives. So how do we get that? What does that require? What do we do? And this story that we're gonna walk through today, and there's a lot of story here, so just bear with me, but it shows how different people begin to respond to this offer from Jesus. And most of these responses are desert responses. They do not lead to life. But one of them can turn even a desert life into an overflowing life. So I want us to take a look. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of John, chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. Jesus, if you remember, last week uh, has had a very hard moment. This is this story we're about to look at is coming right after a hard saying that Jesus gives, a hard word that he gives, and he loses many of his followers in, in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7, John says he's, he's now wandering around in Galilee, so, uh, and he, which you'll notice is up here in the north. It's that yellow section there in Israel, and he won't go down south to Judea, which is that orange part down there at the bottom because the Jews wanted to kill him, okay? That's in verse one. Now just a reminder, when John says the Jews, he doesn't mean ethnic Jews because everybody in John's gospel is basically an ethnic Jew. He means the religious leaders, which most of them, right, they work in Jerusalem, that's down in Judea. So the religious authorities want to kill Jesus. So now Jesus is teaching in Galilee. And John tells us that the Feast of Booths is happening in Jerusalem. And again, that's south in Judea. And the Feast of Booths was a, was a celebration of the Jewish people where they remembered when God led them, their ancestors, through the wilderness after the Exodus. And they would, it was like the Christmas of the Jewish people at this time. They would build little tents all around town, sort of like this. And they would light lights. So even at night, it was very bright. And they would do all kinds of festivities during the week. It was really, really fun. And uh, lots and lots of people would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths together. But Jesus, John says, Jesus wouldn't go. And now we get to our first desert response to Jesus. And it's from Jesus' own brothers. So listen to verse 3. So his brothers said to him, "'Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly.'" If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, we don't probably often think about this, but Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. They're actually named, some of them, in Mark chapter 6, if you want to go look at that. Uh, One of them, James, we know became the leader of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts and wrote one of our books in the New Testament. But early on in Jesus' ministry, pretty consistently, we see that none of Jesus' siblings believed in him. They didn't follow him right away. That's what John says again here. And, And they're disappointed in him here is the idea. They know, again, he's just lost a ton of followers, and they think he's being wimpy for not going to the festival in Jerusalem. They say, go, go down south. They think if you're really who you say you are, go prove it. In Jerusalem, on the biggest stage that our country has to offer you, stop wasting your time up here in Galilee a real messiah would strike while the iron's hot so that's our first point here is that a desert life wants Jesus to be more impressive this is their problem with Jesus the brothers are unimpressed by him they don't like his strategy they don't like his track record from a human perspective it's all disappointing to them he's lost a ton of momentum coming out of chapter 6 Lots of people walked away, and now he won't capitalize on this huge moment in Jerusalem. This is not unlike a politician on the campaign trail who just had like a bad moment go viral online a week ago, and now won't go to the state fair to stump speech. It's like you're doing two things wrong now. And his brothers are giving him a hard time about it. They're, like, they're saying, boo, Jesus, boo, be more impressive. Do more miracles, find more people, get more popular, send more fireworks, more, more, more. They don't like his timing. They don't like his strategy, and so they don't like him. They don't believe in him, is what John says. They don't believe in him. And the desert life can get stuck on how impressive or unimpressive Jesus looks to us from our perspective. It gets caught up in human power and human wisdom politics, whatever, to accomplish God's will. It says to Jesus, not unlike Jesus' brothers, listen, Jesus, we know what to do to get your mission done, so just follow our lead. Just do what we say, Jesus, and it'll all work out for you. But Jesus clearly says no to that. He will not be manipulated by his brothers. He will not be cajoled by them because he knows that his father's timing is more important Than any human strategy. That's why he says this in verse 8. He says, You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus knows his father's timing is more important than his brother's opinion. And we can get stuck in this too. I mean, it probably doesn't take much thought. No doubt there have been times in our lives we've wanted Jesus to do something or to say something or to change something, and he's left us underwhelmed and unimpressed. His strategy and his timing, they seemed inexplicable to us, and maybe even downright counterproductive. It's like, Jesus, why didn't you do what I wanted you to do? But for an overflowing life, our faith has to be bigger than our ability to always know what Jesus is up to and when he's up to it. It has to be bigger than anything human power and authority and planning can accomplish. But his brothers can't do that. They don't believe, and they're stuck because of it. But eventually, you'll notice, Jesus does go up to Jerusalem for the festival. That's verse 10. His time does come, his moment does come, but notice he goes in private, not in public like his brothers wanted him to do. And everybody, John says, is looking for Jesus. Everybody's waiting for him to show up. They've heard about this preacher up north who fed 5,000 people, but who's also said some pretty crazy stuff about himself. Stuff like, I'm better than Abraham and Moses. And there's all kinds of opinions and rumors floating around Jerusalem about Jesus. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. And John gives you a little bit of that in verses 11 and 12, kind of what's being said. But everybody's being really careful about who they talk about Jesus in front of because they know the authorities want to kill him. So they don't want to be too close. Then about halfway through the Feast of Booths. So remember, that's about a, it's about a week. So about halfway through that week, Jesus breaks his silence. This is verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it? That this man has learning when he has never studied. Now, the Jews, the religious authorities, they marvel at Jesus when they hear him teach. They are astonished by him. Remember, these guys spent years and years and years from childhood on training under a rabbi in school every day, over and over and over again, in order to get to a place where they could teach publicly. They never stopped reading, learning, arguing, and training around Torah, around the Old Testament. It was a lifelong pursuit for these religious teachers. They have prepared their whole lives for moments like this. And then along comes Jesus, this absolute nobody from Galilee with a weird accent, no pedigree, no formal training. He's on their turf. Trying to win their people over to his message. And they marvel at him. I mean, they cannot believe how good he talks when he didn't do do his book learning with them. Man, this guy's a pretty good communicator. They marvel, but they do not listen to a word he says. All they can think about is this guy is not qualified to be here, he lacks our approval. He lacks the credentials to tell anyone anything about God, spirituality, life, or faith. They can't even begin to accept Jesus' offer of life because they don't like his resume enough. They're unimpressed by his, because desert life wants Jesus to have better credentials. That's their response to him. Desert life doesn't start with Jesus' example or his miracles or his teaching which Jesus will point to in arguments with the religious leaders over and over and over again. No, it starts with his bona fides, and when they find them lacking, it moves on. It may, this, this desert faith may marvel at Jesus from afar, but it never believes in him. It never gets personally invested it, because Jesus doesn't check all the boxes, now, again, we can get stuck on Jesus' resume, too, especially those of us who may be interested in Jesus but perhaps not totally convinced about who he is. Jesus can seem unappealing to us at first because he doesn't sound like one of us. He's not a scientist with proofs and lab results, and he's not a psychologist telling us how to improve our self-image. He, he doesn't talk like our teachers do. About helping us find our own truths and our own opinions about things and how to self actualize and never let anyone tell us who we can or cannot be. He's never published a book, he's not started a podcast, he's never won an Oscar. He doesn't do the things that many of our modern heroes do. His accomplishments, his credentials may not add up to much from a modern perspective. But, and again, Jesus, this is where Jesus points, he can make people whole. That's, that's what he says in verse 23. He responds to these religious teachers and their cynicism around his credentials by saying, you're mad that I don't teach like you do. You're mad that I don't teach the Sabbath, in particular, the way that you do. But I made a man whole. He references an, an earlier miracle on a Sabbath day where he healed a man completely and he says isn't that enough to get you to even listen to me don't you believe i can do the same for you and the tragedy is these religious teachers they hear him say that and they basically say eh pass not interested desert life can't get past jesus's credentials long enough to hear his offer of life it gets stuck And the real tragedy of these people is no matter what Jesus says or does, they will never get over that he isn't one of them. And because of that, nothing can grow in their lives. Nothing can change. They will remain the same dry desert they were when Jesus found them in the first place. And again, perhaps we too, even if we can marvel at Jesus, we can keep him at arm's length and miss out on his offer of life that he came to give because he isn't one of us, doesn't talk like we do. But there's still another danger in how we respond to Jesus here. And Jesus finishes this argument with the religious teachers, okay? And then everybody in the temple that day is talking about it because they heard this exchange between the two of them. And people are all over the map about Jesus. This is verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now, these folks, right, you can tell, are impressed by Jesus. He's done enough to get their attention, and they're listening to him, but they aren't concerned with it. They aren't concerned like the teachers are with his pedigree, but there's still a problem. And John hints at it here in verse 27. This is again the voice of the crowd. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, that's a little confusing, but apparently there was a rumor floating around at this time. And John records it here that when Messiah came, nobody would know where he was from. That was one of the interpretations that, that was floating around, which sounds kind of silly, I know, but there you have it. It was real. Some of these people have a preconceived idea about the Messiah, about who Jesus should be, and they cannot square it with who Jesus actually is. It's kind of like they go, man, I really like him. There's something about him. I can't explain everything he does, but isn't he from Galilee? Isn't he from Nazareth? We know Messiah doesn't come from there. Therefore, I don't care about anything else he says or does. This is an automatic no for me. I'm not interested. Now, I doubt that anybody here is seriously concerned about Jesus' hometown. That's not a reason you choose to follow Jesus or not. But the same dynamic can be a play in our own desert life. Because a desert life wants Jesus to meet our every expectation. Every expectation. We're willing to listen to him, maybe, to consider him. But if he doesn't check every box on the list, we're out. It's an all-or-nothing proposition with Him. And usually, this means that we are really interested in a Jesus who is exactly like us. He thinks the same way we do. He would spend His time and His money the same way we do. He would vote the same way. He loves the people we love. He hates the people we hate. Our friends are His friends. And our enemies are his enemies. And on and on that list could go. And if the real Jesus attempts to challenge us or change us or confront us or disappoint us, well, time to look for another Messiah. That can't be the Christ. (laughs) Because we know that the real Savior would have the exact same opinion on everything that we do. Which is precisely what the crowd says. It's like, well, we know where Messiah should be from. And we won't be challenged on that. <laughs> now, when you say that out loud, it sounds kind of crazy, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, when is the last time Jesus disappointed you or changed your opinion or your mind about something as you studied him? Like, really ask yourself when is the last time that happened for you? We talked a little bit about that last Sunday. But if that never happens, we end up with the Jesus that we always wanted who keeps us comfortable, but can't do a thing to change a desert life into anything resembling living water. We've sanitized him. And we are all more than capable of falling into any of these traps. And John could have given us more. And many of Jesus' contemporaries did fall into these traps. We, We can find ourselves unimpressed. With Jesus' strategy of of meekness and forgiveness and sacrifice and grace. Like, that doesn't sound very appealing. We want winners who know how to play the game. We can dismiss Jesus because, man, who worships and follows some guy who lived 2,000 years ago? We know more than he ever did, and his message is outdated, and it's uneducated, and his credentials don't add up. He has nothing to say to a modern world. We can get frustrated with Jesus because he keeps failing our expectations. He doesn't make us feel as good as we thought that he would or as validated as we think we should. He isn't who we predicted him to be, and so maybe it's time to move on and find somebody else. We can even talk a lot about Jesus and admire him from afar and marvel at him like many of these people do, but never actually believe in him and never receive anything from him. Now imagine, okay, after these, imagine how Jesus feels in this moment. He's just had three really frustrating conversations in a row. And here he is. Remember, at this feast, which is a feast about God's provision in the desert. That's what the whole thing's about. The feast of booths is remembering that God can give you food and water when you should just be dead. When you're in a place that's dry and dead, he can provide for you. And Jesus is like, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the water in the desert. So he says this in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You can almost hear his anguish as he says this aloud at the seventh day, of the, the last day of this feast. It's like he's saying, just believe me already. <laughs> just give it a try. He's imploring them. Like people, we can deal with the credentials and the expectations and the disappointment later. But we can't deal with any of that stuff. You'll never fully understand who I am or how I work or where I'm actually from until you begin to believe in me. It has to start there. And this is the foundational piece for an overflowing life. This is the source of the Nile. This is the head of the river. And it's so incredibly simple, yet it is so elusive for so many of us, and it's this: it's that the overflowing life believes in Him. He says it right there: believe in me. If you want to be a river, it has to start with belief. Whoever believes in me can overflow with life-giving water. Now, this is more than intellectual assent, that is not what Jesus means. It's more than checking Christian on the census form. We we can hear this and think that Jesus means that all we have to do is believe that he existed like an historical figure, like Winston Churchill, and that we've believed in him. But that is not what it is to listen to him or to obey him or train with him. That's not belief. That's another desert. Belief in the Bible is always active. If you believe something, if you believe in something, you build your life on it, you trust it, you submit to it, you accept it, and most importantly, most importantly, belief knows that we can't be anything but a desert until Jesus helps us. It is completely up to him. It is the acknowledgement that no earthly power or human strategy or pedigree or education can turn a desert into a garden. It is a miracle or it's nothing. There is no in-between. When Jesus asks us to believe in him, he is asking us to believe that he alone can do for us what no one else can. It starts there. He says, come to me. Bring your thirst to me. Come with your loneliness. Come with your lack. Come with your inadequacy. Come with your sin, your desperation. Don't come as if you've got it figured out. Come to me with your need, open-handed, open-minded, asking for help. You have to know your need before you will drink Jesus, the life-giving water. And Jesus knows this. Because if you're really lost in a desert, think about this. If you're dying of thirst, and you know it, and you feel it, and Jesus walks up to you with a glass of water, you are not asking for his credentials. What qualifies you to give me that? You wouldn't be worried about where the water came from. It's like, this doesn't meet my expectations. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't ask him to prove that it was actually water and not something else. You would drink. That's what you would do. And when we do, when we accept in faith, when we do come to Jesus desperate and thirsty Drinking deeply of his beauty and his love, we begin to experience an overflowing life. This is the offer on the table. And I love this image from Jesus because it's not a reservoir, it's a river flowing actually out of us into the lives of other people, bringing life to a dry and dead world. And John goes on to connect this promise from Jesus to the coming of the Holy Spirit, that we have God's Spirit in us and becomes a river of life. And where John will go for the rest of this gospel along the way is to show us exactly the kind of life-bringing people that we, by God's grace, can actually become. But it has to start with belief. It has to start in humility and ignorance and brokenness. That's where it begins. It begins by coming to Jesus empty-handed and asking him to take our dead, dry lives and to do something impossible with them. To make them, to make a way in our lives where we see no way, to give life where we have only ever found death. To make a desert into a living, breathing, overflowing river. It starts with belief in Jesus who gives us our response for this morning, who comes to us and says, this is my body broken for you. And he gives us the Lord's table. And he says, this is my blood shed for you. Jesus says, if you can believe that my death and my resurrection are for you, in your place, then there's nothing I cannot do with your life which is why for us who follow Jesus, we we remind ourselves regularly in the practice of communion that we can offer nothing to Jesus but, but our trust in his sacrifice. That's where we start. We believe in him, and we trust that he can make us into something beautiful together. And if you're here and you're listening to me and you've not yet believed in Jesus like as I've described it here, I want to encourage you not to come and receive this right now. We are so glad that you're here. We want to explain more to you what this life can look like. But this, this is this practice is for those who know their deserts. And you honor us by not participating. Take this next moment. It's fine. Remain where you are and reflect on what you've heard. For those of you who have followed Jesus, I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And then I'm going to invite you forward to receive. And there are Station's right up here in the front of the room. This one to my far left is gluten free if you need it. But I want to encourage you to come and receive in groups and remember that this moment is a reminder that without Jesus, we have nothing. That's what this is. We bring nothing, we do nothing, we offer nothing. But with Him, we have everything. We have everything. And more than filling our every need, we actually open ourselves up to overflow with His life from our hearts to a dry, dead world. Let's pray to Him now. Father, prepare our hearts as we come to receive from You. Remind us again that we come empty-handed And whatever we bring today, and I invite all of us to think what we bring, whether that be disobedience, shame, anger, fear, distraction, numbness, that we bring that to your table and we say we have nothing to offer you, Jesus, but you have given us everything. Holy Spirit, use this moment now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, please come.